Would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that as the sun came up, it's a reminder that you have purpose for us even today. Uh, Your goodness on display. The fact that we have breath in our lungs this morning tells us that you have a purpose, even though we might not be able to see it. Whether our day or our lives today seems even mundane, that you have sovereignly purposed breath in our lungs and blood pumping through our bodies for your good purposes and for our good today. We pray this morning you'd speak to us by your word that we'd be encouraged and challenged, built up and equipped for all that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. We're really glad that you're with us. Um, I'm excited today. We're, we're opening a, a new series um, that'll take us from now until Advent. Um, we're looking at two small Old Testament prophets, the prophets Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And we're looking at the two of them together, while, although they're a little bit different in their approach, they're both happening around the same time in biblical history. And their context is one I think that we can relate to a little bit as a people here in 2020. Maybe, perhaps, we can gain some insight into how they discovered God's character, how they grieved injustice and sin, and how repentance and lament results not in despair, but in praise. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different as we're going to try to take a little, a, a big picture, a broad look. So we'll be looking at a handful of scriptures today rather than one small text to try to set the stage for the next seven weeks. We want to understand the context of where these two books are, uh, how, they, where they, how they were written, what was happening around them, and, and what they have to say to us. Some 2,600 years later, to, a, to a, a local church in an upper Midwest town in a country that wasn't invented yet. What do these books have to tell us? So the context, a little bit, of, of these two prophets, if you want to turn there, you can, to the book of Habakkuk. And I don't know how you pronounce it. <clears throat> Habakkuk. You can put the emphasis on a different syllable, but we're going to go with Habakkuk. Uh, and Zephaniah. You can turn there. We'll start there looking at a few passages. The context of these two prophets, they're living in a time of unrest. In terms of timeline, scholars put these two prophets uh, right around this same window of time between about 640 B.C. till about 610 or 609 B.C. Chronologically, uh, scholars think Zephaniah probably came a little bit first, and then Habakkuk in the canon here. They're listed Habakkuk and then Zephaniah. We're going to kind of take them that way. But the, but the context here, um, uh, even though they're, they're, they're writing at a similar time, their style and their aim is a little different. Habakkuk's more of a conversation between himself and God. He's lodging a, a complaint, if you will, to God, and God responds, and he lodges another one, and God responds again, and then the third chapter of Habakkuk is him kind of writing out this lengthy, what do I do with this now that God has responded? Zephaniah, on the other hand, is more of the traditional prophet approach, hearing from God, getting a picture, a vision 
from God and then turning back to God's people and saying, the Lord has said, in a sense, here's areas of caution or concern or, or encouragement. But both are looking forward. They're looking at what's going on around them and they're trying to kind of peek over the edge and what they see over the edge of the wall of time, so to speak, is coming judgment. They see trouble, more trouble than they have right now. They see even greater trouble coming. They see a nation at their doorstep, Babylon, ready to pounce. They're both dealing with sin and decay that's happening around them. And what's interesting is both of them, the end of these books, will find, don't fall off into despair, but instead, both of them end and find hope in God in the midst of this ruin that they're living in. And that's where we're going to find our, our path through these two prophetic books. We're calling this series Revival in the Ruin. And the reality is that because sin, the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, has affected everything. All of life on this side of eternity is plagued by injustice and idolatry. All of it. And that can leave us to either retreat into cynicism or it can create in us this selfish reactionism, an attempt to solve eternal and spiritual problems using temporary means. But we're invited and empowered to live in this world. This is the world in which we live, right? By faith. Faith in God. Faith that he will bring about justice. Faith that he will always fulfill his promises. And when we are able to live in this way, our response then is, praise, or can be hopeful praise. So, so this revival in the ruin is us listening carefully to what these Old Testament prophets, Habakkuk and Zephaniah, what they're seeing in the midst of their ruin, and how their faith in God is revived, is renewed. So those are going to be our, our two kind of big ideas today as we, as we work through our time. The words ruin and the word revival. The reality of a world in ruin will often lead towards cynicism, cynical retreat, or, or vain, selfish reaction. But when God's people experience a true revival, we're able to see with eyes the brokenness and sin around us, but we can respond not with hopelessness, not with despair, but with faith and with so let's look at the first one. Let's look at the ruin. Look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. This is how the book opens. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, verse 2, Habakkuk's first words, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? I use the word ruin because in the time of Habakkuk and Zephaniah in history, there is widespread idolatry, worshiping of false gods. There is widespread corruption, and both of these are just sin, right? Nation is at war against nation, war crimes, the enslavement of others. There's no Geneva Convention and the proper treatment of, of prisoners of war. In fact, when one nation took over another, it was either death or slavery for the ones who were conquered. This is common practice in the world in which they're writing. 
But it's not just sin out there. The other thing that these prophets are dealing with, Israel and Judah have been plagued for generations uh, by wicked kings. Of all the kings that God's people had, very few of them were actually righteous. Most of them, a vast majority, were wicked. They did not love God. They were greedy and selfish and sought their own personal power and gain. They did not obey God's word. They were corrupt. And because of that, God would remove his hand of protection, remove his hand of favor from his people, and would leave them exposed. And that's what's happening here. Now, there is a good king we'll get into uh, in in Habakkuk, uh, young King Josiah, that there's some hope here. But by and large, God's people are dealing outward and inwardly with corruption and brokenness and sin. And all the other nations of the world, they know it. They know it. Anyone grow up watching the Discovery Channel? You were eight years old and you realized, like, the lion actually eats the gazelle and I'm watching it happen in real time. Right? And who does it go after? Or I guess the lioness would probably do the hunting, right? Who, who, who do they go after? The, like, the weak antelope with the, like, gimpy leg. Why? Easy picking. Right? This is what's happening here. Judah is easy pickings. They're broken down. They're wandering. They're lost. The nations are like wounded gazelle. That's what's happening. And Habakkuk, seeing this unfolding around him, says this. How long, O Lord? I've been crying for help for for many years, and yet you seem to, to not care. Where are you? That's how this book opens. And we can relate a little to this, can't we? Haven't there been times in your own life, going through a season of trial, when you're asking the Lord and you're, is, this, is it enough yet? Have I suffered enough? Are you, are you listening? Are you, are you there? Like we can, in the midst of hardship, be thankful. And we should for many, many blessings that God gives us. Even in the midst of hard seasons, if we're honest and we take a step back, we can see His hand of blessing in so many ways. At any given time. But it's true that our world and our lives seem to be just as tumultuous, right? When we check the news or the tweet machine, wherever you get your information, the the world is both literally and figuratively on fire, right? A a, a city in southern Louisiana gets hit by a hurricane and then six weeks later, later gets hit by another one. Fires raging in the Pacific Northwest. Nation at war against nation. Corruption. A willing ignorance of truth. Failures of justice. These things seem to be normal right now. So normal, in fact, that we're almost not phased by them anymore. Another news blurb goes across the ticker and we go, well, just chalk that up to 2020, I suppose. Right? We just add it to the list of ruin. Right? Today, this very day, there's global human trafficking, modern-day slavery happening. There's unrest in war. Right now, there's a brewing conflict. I don't know if you saw this in the news. Right now, there's a brewing conflict between 
uh, the small country of Armenia and Azerbaijan, its neighbor. It's already produced, and it's just this brewing conflict right now, but it's already produced tens of millions of dollars of destruction and hundreds of lives, mostly civilians, non-military deaths. And some who are experts in the field of geopolitics are saying this is kind of a, has the potential to kind of boil over to be a long-standing problem and conflict in the region. That right now it's just kind of starting, let alone a global pandemic and its fallout. There is legitimate ruin when we look around. And so maybe we feel a little bit like Habakkuk. Or we sound a little bit like the psalmist calling out to God over and over again. Listen to these. Psalm 6, 3. How long do we have to wait? Psalm 13. How long shall my enemy exalt over me? Psalm 35. How long will you look on what's happening, inferring, are you going to do something about it? Psalm 82, 2. How long will you stop letting the wicked prosper, Lord? Because the wicked seem to be doing just fine, and yet the righteous not so much. Psalm 89, verse 46, how long will you hide yourself? Psalm 119, 84, how long must your servant endure? When is enough enough? How long, O Lord? And if we're honest, we, we feel this, right? At least to some degree. Or we just decide to live under a rock. We feel this, and I think we should feel this. I think we are seeing the world rightly when we look at so much of the brokenness of the world around us and our hearts break along with it. That's good. The challenge is, what do we do with that? Because sometimes it's just overwhelmingly broken. I think we can fall off into one of two extremes. We can, we can retreat on one side into cynicism. Everything is bad. And it's so bad, there's little point in trying to change anyone's mind or fix anything about it. It's all going to burn anyway, and we end up carrying very little. We become nihilists where, who cares, right? Or we can fall off the other side, and I think, and we become reactionary, but not like motivated towards good action or good works. We just react to everything at the same level without uh, any kind of framework or context. Everything we're supposed to react to, we react to. And it doesn't come from a position of solving problems and addressing needs, but it's more one of self-importance and self-preservation to align ourselves with these things so as to be seen. So ask yourself, do you fall off on one of those two sides? Because the, the, the problem with them is that both reactions, both of those extremes, are faithless responses. See, in Habakkuk and Zephaniah's case, they could look at the corruption, they could look at the coming war with Babylon, they could say, well, it's been a good run. It's over. Pack it in. And they could be hopeless and nihilistic and not care. Or, or they could have said, forget that mess. We're going to fight. Or, or, or we need new corruption legislation so our kings will stop being as corrupt, stop taking bribes, or, or maybe we'll start a campaign against idol worship. And this just becomes futile 
temporary solutions. It becomes sin management, and that's it. See, both these ends, both these extremes are faithless. Neither of these extremes show that the actual need is God himself. They are without faith. They are self-managed. They have the answer. If everyone would just listen to me, people would stop being idiots. I could solve this. We could solve this. Or if people would just get on board, right? It's this self-management thing, but they fail to see that the problem, the root problem at, at, the, at the core is not an outward behavioral change. It's a, it's a heart issue. It's a sin issue. Habakkuk and Zephaniah, thankfully, don't fall into these traps. They see the problems, they see the pain around them, and they rightly see its root cause is sin. And the guard against uh, these falling off into these ditches is faith. Habakkuk actually complains to the Lord, twice actually, and we'll get into that in the coming weeks. And the Lord is gracious to answer him. And in chapter 2, if you want to uh, just move down a little bit from Habakkuk 1 to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, this is how the Lord reminds Habakkuk of the condition of the hearts of, in, my, in this case, the cynic and the reactionary. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. It's puffed up. That idea of self-inflated and self-important it is not, but it's not upright. It's not righteous. It is self-inflated, but it is unrighteous. But, the Lord tells Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by his faith. We'll see more of this in Habakkuk too, but I think it's impossible to see the world rightly and navigate it rightly without faith in God. I don't think you need eyes of faith to just see that the world is broken. Anybody can look out and see like, yes, there's something wrong here. But I think you do need eyes of faith. You do need faith in order to rightly diagnose why. Why is this broken? Because if we get the why wrong, we're going to get the solution wrong. If you get the diagnosis wrong, you get the treatment wrong. Rightly seeing the root of the ruin around us is a work of faith. We recognize, yes, there is brokenness. Yes, there is hurt and sin and pain. And at its root, what it needs is redemption. We don't have to fall off into cynicism or selfish reaction. And that leads us to our second word, our second idea here for this series one is recognizing the ruin, and two is the need for revival. We get this word revival from Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk 3 is, is his prayer. It's his, he ties together all that he's uh, heard from the Lord. He complains, the Lord responds. He complains again, the Lord responds. And then we get Habakkuk 3. And in verse 2 of Habakkuk 3, it reads like this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. 
in the midst of the years, revive it. That's where we get that word, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. The, the connotation, the meaning here of this word revive is to come back to life, right? In order to revive something, it has to first be vived. I'm using that word improperly, but go with me. Life has to come first, and then as death creeps in and decay, what needs to happen is life needs to be brought back, has to be, life re-enters, and it's where we get this idea of revival. And at the end of Habakkuk's back and forth with God, we, pr- we hear him pray, and what is he asking for? Yes, he's asking for God to move. In our days, in these days, in your timing, make yourself, your work, your power known. Revive your work among us, O Lord. He's asking for God to bring revival to God's people. It doesn't mean God will not be just. Both Habakkuk and Zephaniah long for justice. We'll read it all through here in both prophets that they call out to God for justice and God's response is, oh, I will be just. The wicked should face God's righteous justice and they will. The broken and afflicted, the harassed and helpless should be welcomed in. And it's particularly beautiful in Zephaniah chapter 3. It closes with this beautiful picture of God welcoming in these who he has redeemed. They will be rescued. But this movement towards restoration and healing and redemption and justice does not happen with a global renewal action plan where they gathered all the nations of the earth and say, how can we be better people? It's not how we get there. The movement towards God's reestablishing of his justice and bringing redemption to the broken, meaningful help and hope to those in need. It starts with a change of heart in God's people first. It starts at home. What do I mean it starts at home? In almost every major movement of God's people, every major event in, in, the, in biblical history, in the life of the people of God, after time of sin and often exile, where they are scattered or taken away by foreign nations as part of God's correction of them. In almost every instance, as God brings them back, as he redeems them, as he rescues the the small remnants that he's kept and protected and guarded, they come back together and they they gather in in a holy assembly and often what, hap- what happens is, is a king or a prophet or someone takes God's word, which has long been forgotten or shoved in a closet and not heard for a generation, and they open God's word and they begin to read it. They begin to teach from it. And what happens? God's people, upon hearing his word, fall on their faces. They repent. They recognize God has been so immeasurably merciful to us, undeservedly so, while at the same time maintaining justice. And they repent, and they weep, and they sing, and they praise, and then they 
get up from that spot and they start to follow where they left off following God. Because they're seeing through faith-filled eyes. Faith that God is who He said He is. Faith that He is just. Faith that He is good. Faith that He is merciful. Look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, if you're in Habakkuk, just turn a couple of pages over. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. It's a little heavy. Right? God is gathering the nations together, almost like pulling them into a, a pile so that he can really direct his fires of judgment right in place. Gathering them all into a fire pit so we can just put all the fire in one spot. Right? It seems a little intense. God does and will it's good that God is just. Let me say it that way. It is good that God is just. He does not put uh, wickedness aside. He doesn't slough it off like it's no big deal. It is a good thing for us that God is always just and does not deal lightly with evil. And here in Zephaniah 3.8, we see that God brings a fire that will consume the wicked. And that fire has a dual purpose. God brings a fire that will purify and refine His people. Look at verse 9, the next verse. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That's the word, pure. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Here's the gospel truth embedded here in these Old Testament prophets. God does not overlook sin. God deals with sin. He, doesn't, he didn't overlook your sin or my sin. He doesn't just give a wink and a nod and sweep it under the rug like it's no big deal. He deals with it. For us, on this side of the cross, we, we sing those words, right? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, not just a sliver of it, all of it. Every ounce of wickedness in me is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord of my soul. God deals with sin. And he makes it possible to have a hope that God in his timing will finally and forever carry out justice. It's okay to look at injustice in the world and cry out, God, be just. So Habakkuk's prayer here is right in line with this. God, it is good, God, that you would be just. And as you execute justice, would you be merciful? This is the gospel. Paul lays it out in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen carefully. This is Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Pause. Ruined. (laughs) Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For those who have been made alive in Christ Jesus, I am, we are, crying out to God to revive our hearts with the reality of this gospel. And the result is, even while waiting, even in the midst of what seems like ruin, our response to the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus is praise. Back in Habakkuk chapter 3, in Habakkuk's response, as he asks for a revival, that God would work His revival in His people, At the end of the chapter, he acknowledges the fig tree still might not have blossom. The stalls where there should be livestock are still empty. Yet, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. See, there's a confidence here. Not just a change of circumstance, but a confidence that God will bring about justice. That He will preserve and protect His people. That He will bring to completion everything that He has promised. That He will have joy in the midst of trial. See, there are many things in this world that are far above our pay grade. Things over which we have very little to no control. For example, a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Like, what effect can we actually have from here on something like that? Maybe, maybe some things. I don't know. And so, if you're like me, you might be prone to cynicism. But, but do I trust that God rules and reigns even in the midst of war and strife? That He sits enthroned in the heavens above every nation and ruler, that they all are subject to Him? Do I, do I believe that? And if I do, do I believe that, that God cares and knows of the hair on every single head? Children in Armenia and Azerbaijan, halfway on the globe, that they are known and loved by their Creator. And if I do, does that cause me to plead with my God? to preserve, to protect, to display both justice and mercy. 
There are truly many things also in this world where we can actually do something about. We can get involved and participate in meaningful change. We can act on behalf of the harassed and the helpless. We can speak truth. We can lend our influence to advocate for justice, to advocate for righteousness. But are we humble enough to know that no amount of legislation, no amount of social media awareness or education, not the right candidate, will transform at the heart level? That action and activism can be really good, but because humans are not just basically good, because sin is fractured to the very core of our existence, that long-term lasting change requires a supernatural work of the Spirit, not merely a change of behavior. See, my prayer in this season is that these two short books, it equates to one, two, three, four, five, six pages maybe of my Bible here, that these short two little books will serve to kind of pull us from those ditches of cynicism and selfish sentimentality. That as we look at the ruin all around us, that we would be rightly burdened by what we see and that we would be driven to our faces to call out to God, to seek Him, to, to seek His Word. We would be stirred to prayer and that the Spirit of God would start here, in us, in me, bringing revival to the places of deadness that are still here, that are prone to, to, to scoff at what I see on the news or to retreat into my den of being a cynic or pretend to be self-important when really I just need to like engage with loving people because Jesus loves me, right? I want to encourage you to, to think of, on these things. Maybe it means in the context of your community group, carving out more time for prayer together, just to be like, here's the burdens we all carry. Let's bring them to Jesus. I would like, I'd like to invite you, if you have a half an hour on Wednesday mornings between 7.30 and 8, uh, we've been... Uh, a small group of people since March, I think, have been, have been connecting over Zoom, of all things, right? Yay, technology. Um, just to pray for about 20 minutes in that half-hour window. If that's something you'd like to do, it's on our, on our weekly update. You can click on the link and register, and then you'll get the link, and you can join us. If that's a window of time you have, just to join us in prayer. And, and my prayer in this season is just that that he'd start at home, that the Spirit would, would work to revive the places of calloused, deadness, overwhelmness, selfishness, and remind us of this beauty in the gospel that we have. See, as we look around at the ruin all around, we, we can respond with grief. And I'm confident that as we lean into him, and if we lean into his word, we'll find him both just and merciful. And that he will, in his sovereign time, according to his will, bring an end to all sin and all wickedness. We have hope that he will indeed wipe away every tear from every eye. And death will be no more. And mourning will be no more. And crying will be no more. And pain will be no more. We can hold on to that anchor. And that while we wait, while we remain, that our, our humility, our humbleness will, will deepen. Our confidence, our, our faith in God will increase. 
and what will come from our mouths, what we contribute to the situation and to the lives of the people around us in the midst of a world that's seemingly ruined by sin. What we will contribute is rejoicing and praise and truth about who God is and confession of our sin and our hope in His redemption from our sin. That the revival and reviving work of the Spirit is at work here in us. Let it be so. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that you are patient with us when we are often so slow to understand what you're up to. We, can, we confess our, our inability to see, our finiteness, our impatience. And we ask in your kindness that you would help us to trust you. We thank you that you did not wait for us to love you, but you came all the way to us in Christ Jesus to call us from darkness and death, to pull off the blindness of sin on our eyes, that we might see you for who you are. And we pray that you would do that again in our hearts, in the places where there is hardness of heart, where the ruin of the world has, has crusted over parts of our hearts. And you'd bring fresh life to places where death and despair want to creep in. Would you renew your people? Start here with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.